Welcome to Offshoot, the Fight and Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me on episode two of Offshoot. I'm very pleased to welcome Josh Sassunas to the platform today. Uh, We had a great exchange regarding Josh's experience coming out of Greystone and then starting Dwight Capital six and a half years ago. Pretty funny stories about being fired before he was ever hired, but basically Greystone failed to give them the resources they deemed necessary and they went out on their own and hired a bunch of smart, talented and energetic people uh, and are managing through that in the center of operations, no corner offices for these two. We also get into some of the nuance around HUD financing, where their expertise lies, kind of the conflict out there between the best mortgage terms in the world and the difficulty or longevity of the process uh, required to secure HUD financing. And we, we also get sort of further into it, uh, talking about all the other things that Josh has done, Dwight Capital, Dwight City Group, Dwight Mortgage Trust, and, and Dwight Funding. Uh, and the leap of faith that's required to start any venture. We, we break into a little bit about hard work and that being a given, but sacrifice being kind of the difference maker and what people are willing to give up to do better. And we also got into relationships, motivation, uh, the desire to be at the top, and a whole array of other items. Josh is clearly a very talented young man. Congratulations to both he and Adam for the accomplishments they've made in six and a half short years to be the number one HUD financing shop in the country. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks. Hello, everyone. Thank you for uh, tuning into the conversation with me and my guest today, Josh Sassoonis. Josh is a young powerhouse entrepreneur whose main focus is White Capital, a company he co-founded with his brother six and a half years ago, and which they've driven to become the number one HUD originator in the country. At Dwight, he leads the mortgage banking team on primarily HUD originations, but also Fannie, Freddie, and CMBS. Uh, in addition to Dwight Capital, Josh is also a partner in Dwight Funding, which provides early stage growth capital to companies. Dwight City Group, a director and investor in around New York City, Lev, a capital markets brokerage firm leveraging off of AI. I met Josh through Rika, a uh, strategic alliance of 21 firms like mine uh, and McBride Capital, one of the alliance partners. We've worked together for only a couple years, um, but he is without a doubt one of the nation's leading experts on HUD financing. And he also knows what it means to start and build companies, something he does with a pleasant disposition and a strong conviction to get stuff done. So without further ado, Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Um, as I had mentioned to you before, you know, let's just follow our curiosity and, and have a conversation, see where things go. 
Um, but to start, could you could you just tell me a bit about yourself and and the company Dwight Capital? Uh, yeah, you, you know, I'll start from the beginning. Um, Perfect. So I was, uh, I grew up in suburban New York City in a town called Alpine, New Jersey. Um, it's about 30 minutes uh, north of, of the city. Uh, went to uh, date, you know, elementary school, high school in New Jersey. You know, again, just 30 minutes outside the city. Um, ended up going to college at George Washington University in D.C. And um, that's when I uh, got into mortgage banking. Got into mortgage banking um, immediately after school uh, at a company called Greystone. Uh, now, question, you, you want to hear a funny story now that we're on a podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, my brother has been working at Greystone when I started for nine months. And I, I had no interest in working with him. I just, I had left, you know, he, he's just a year older than me. Uh, we'd gone to school you know, the same schools throughout our lives. Uh, he was always one grade older. Uh, there was like, you know, older brother syndrome. Uh, I finally made it out of uh, New York Metro. You know, he went to NYU, I went to GW. So we were in, you know, completely different places for four years uh, for the most part. Uh, obviously came back and forth a little bit. Um, I had no interest in working with him. I, you know, created my own path, my own personality without my older brother uh, lingering over my head and every younger brother knows what I'm talking about. I am a younger uh, brother, so I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, you know, he, I, I wanted to work in a real estate firm in New York, you know, that was really focused on, uh, New York city properties. I, I really just wasn't aware of multifamily, you know, garden style multifamily, you know, isn't a thing for where I grew up, a lot of single family homes. And when you told me apartment building, all I really thought of was, you know, the 10 plus story apartment buildings in New York, you know, 50 story uh, sometimes. Uh, I didn't know what Garn style multifamily was. Uh, I didn't know, you know, about the majority of the country. Um, I didn't know anything uh, about, you know, really outside my little bubble that I grew up in. Um, and so I'd wanted to work in a New York City based real estate firm. And uh, my brother really wanted me to work with him at Greystone, you know, which is where he started nine months prior. And I was just like, no, <laughs> not working with you. And he's like, oh, we, we can be great. We, you know, uh, there's so much potential. There's so much uh, money to be made in our business. And I was like, no, not like, I'm not interested, man. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And then he's like, okay, why don't, you, why don't you come here and let me show you how we make money. And he broke down a deal for me on how profits are generated in mortgage banking. And before his pen came off the paper, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> let's, let's do this. <laughs> Very good. But from Greystone, you guys, uh, how long did you stay there before choosing to set off on your own? Well, there's, there's another funny story. All right. 
that's just the intro. That's the intro. So we get the Greystone. Uh, I, I, you know, so, so, uh, I was never officially hired by Greystone. My brother had been working in a, you know, Greystone is, is headquartered out of New York City, um, out of Manhattan, and one of the top producers over there lived lives about 40 miles new, uh, 40 miles north of the city in a town called Wesley Hills. Um, so he had a satellite office there, this top producer at Greystone, because he wasn't, you know, he just wasn't interested in driving into the city for an hour and a half every day. So that's where my brother worked. So I said, okay, what do I do? He said, J- just come to the office. So I came into the office. Uh, I started working. No contract, nothing. And, you know, three weeks later, the the, uh, the head of our division got wind that Adam's brother was working in a Greystone office. And uh, she confronted my brother about it, and he denied it. He said, nope, Josh isn't here. But apparently we had a tattletale in the office, and uh, she, knew, she knew it was a matter of fact. So she... She suspended Adam for a week and fired me without hiring me. <laughs> Perfect. So it was kind of like, kind of like that Seinfeld episode with Kramer, uh, you know, where he gets he gets fired without being hired. So uh, it was it was I'm making it seem like a joke, but it was a very dramatic experience, especially for a young kid out of school. I'm sure. Ended up ended up starting up, uh, you know, starting back there again, you know, the, uh, two months later, and. Um, you know, uh, stayed there for about three and a half, four years. Okay, cool. So, so what led you guys to anyway, make the jump? I mean, it's it's one thing to be a producer or or well played employee of a large firm, but uh, it's quite another to go out on your own. What what was the uh, what was the inception? So the the impetus was, you know, Greystone was was a lovely place to work. And it still is. It's, it's a great company. Um, but what happened was, was after the recession, you know, Grayson is a, uh, a pretty large conglomerate and uh, all of their divisions were bleeding. Um, you know, their non-real estate related divisions were bleeding. Uh, their Fannie Freddie lenders, they weren't lending there. And HUD was was really the only moneymaker for the firm at the time, you know, the only serious moneymaker, and and was the only way for the company to dig itself out of the hole created by the recession, you know, all the debt and margin calls and issues that came about for every, you know, lender at the time, uh, you know, nothing special for for them, and uh, as a result of of you know being the main profit driver of the firm. We had senior management in our corner, and you know, so so they were helping us out on everything. They were expediting approvals. They were getting involved um, in many of our transactions personally. They were making sure that the division was running as smoothly as possible, um, which is great because when you are in a, a specialized originator of HUD loans. Uh, the key to being an effective originator on such a bureaucratic type of loan that takes, you know, six to 12 months to close, whereas, you know, the typical commercial financing takes 30 to 60 days to close, is you cannot add bottlenecks internally to a process that already has enough of them. 
you know, th th that's the key to being successful in, in this industry. And about two and a half years later, Graceland started making money again. You know, their division started making money. Um, uh, senior management, uh, the, the other divisions started making money. So what did senior management do very naturally is they elevated themselves back to their typical senior management positions and put in middle management between us and them. Mm. And that's when things started going sideways because we were, you know, reporting to people that I don't think had ever heard of a HUD loan in their life mm -hmm. before they walked into the door. And, um, you know, we dealt with it for three months, six months, you know, very frustrating, a lot of arguments to senior management on, on who they put in place uh, between us and how it just, you know, they just weren't effective managers at all. Um, and uh, it came to a boiling point. And you know, about a year after they inserted middle management, we, uh, you know, we had a lot of clients complaining to us about our lack of control on, on deals that we no longer had. And uh, we left. We said, hey, we can do it better. We can create that same environment that we had the first couple of years where we were in Greystone, um, where, uh, you know, the business environment internally was just way more fluid. And we can originate HUD loans um, effectively again. So that's what we did. We, we just, you know, we picked up and left. And was that just the two of you at that time? Was it, or did you kind of bring a team with you or did you go out? How did, how did that, what was like the, you know, day one, is it Josh and Adam? Here's, here's the white capital or what did it look like? Right, so, so at the, at the time when we left, we had a team of about 10 people total, including us two. Uh, we brought three people uh, with us. We, we brought, uh, we brought three people with us, and we hired an an assistant. So it was the six of us to start. Okay, and and you know from that start, as I mentioned at the intro, you guys are, you know, officially or unofficially, I'm not entirely sure, but it definitely seems like you are uh, within or at the number one position in the in the country in terms of HUD originations. Um, Today, what does your day to day look like? What are you tasked with within Dwight Capital? Uh, day to day is chaotic. Um, my brother Adam and I really split our uh, roles and responsibilities well. You know, we, we both focus at what we're better at. Adam acts as more of our overarching CEO, and I act as our, our main revenue driver and managing the revenue driving people within the firm. I, I manage the, you know, the, uh, the loan origination team who's, you know, naturally the, the, uh, you know, top revenue drivers of a mortgage banking firm. And, uh, that's 75% of my day. And, you know, the other 25 is getting involved in more of the, uh, corporate, uh, issues and strategy and, um, things of that nature. So, and I would say my brother, Adam is the flip. He's, you know, 75% corporate, 25% origination. Mm -hmm. Well, look, you, you just mentioned it in talking about Greystone that one of the things um, you think is required to be kind of amongst the best in the arena is alleviating um, internal bottlenecks. I wonder, 
uh, what else? Like what else is in there? Because um, as as you and I have discussed in the past, HUD loans have a pretty interesting reputation in the marketplace. I think a lot of borrowers and brokers um, think they're just too much work and they take maybe too long to get done. Um, you know, but you guys are doing billions of dollars of production. So there's obviously something that compels people to make these transactions. Um, you know, I guess there, maybe there's a two part question there, but I'll just start with what else needs to happen in order for you guys to kind of thrive the way that you have. And then I guess we can move on later to entrenched perceptions, you know, and, and how that might conflict with your view. So I think it's the key to any business, any successful business, which is create a work environment where no one is thinking about external variables. Everyone is comfortable in the environment. Everyone is happy in the environment. Um, we do not allow for bureaucracy. We do not allow for drama or politics. We eliminate it before it starts. We, and we also set that tone to begin with so that the amount of drama, politics, and bureaucracy just is limited you know, even to begin with before we can even eliminate it because of the culture that we set uh, at, in the beginning. So I think that that is the key, just bringing together a lot of smart, talented, creative, energetic people and removing all of those variables. And I think when you do that in any business, magic happens. Um, and I think that's been the key for Dwight. Yeah, I think uh, I think it was I can't recall reading a book on, you know, kind of pre-collapse of Lehman. And it was either Lehman or Bear Stearns that had the mantra of smart, hungry people. So it sounds like uh, you're kind of on the same vein there. Right. I mean, yeah. And to, put, and, and to give a prime example, we have a 20, you know, our headquarters, we have four offices across the country. Our headquarters is in New York. We have 20,000 square feet of space, which is a big space, all on one floor, right? And our office is three quarters full. So there's about 25% of our desk empty. You know, we, 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 when we ended up at this office uh, two years ago, we knew that we'd, we'd want to leave room for growth. So when we started two years ago, we were probably 40% full. Now we're 75% full. So there's still 25% of the office empty, and there's tons of conference rooms and phone rooms and plenty of space. And even with that, both my brother Adam and I sit directly in the center of everyone in the same cube. Uh, you know, no corner office, no, no untouchables. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. The perceptions, Go back to. let's go back to perceptions, right? I mean, the, I'm amazed by um, you guys, and to a certain extent, I think I'm like several of the capital markets advisors or, or brokers in the marketplace, where I've heard of HUD, um, but it's always been this amorphous, quirky product that I could never really wrap my hands around. And, um, you know, there there is a bit of a misperception out there. And I'd love to just hear your you know, kind of thoughts on how you see the marketplace view HUD and how that might conflict with your experience. Because to go from zero to number one in six and a half years, I mean, it's pretty remarkable and i think you've got some insights that you know the kind of 
audience here would be um, happy to kind of learn from. Sure, sure. So, so I, I think again, it's a matter of uh, business principle, which is universal for any business. When you look at the HUD HUD financing programs from a high level, you're both incredibly intrigued and incredibly turned off at the same time. Intrigued as a result of the terms being offered, you know, the low interest rate, the term, the amortization, the high leverage. I mean, the best terms for a mortgage for any type of asset in the country, if not maybe the world. Um, I've never heard of such a competitive program before in my life. Uh, but then, so that's a super intriguing part. On the flip side, you know, you hear these stories of a six to 12 month process that, you know, depending on the type of loan that you do, six months for a refinance, 12 months for a construction loan, um, that as a result of problems can even get elongated to 12 to 18 months or sometimes even 24 months. So when people hear that, they say, A, wow, incredible terms, not worth the effort, not worth the headache. You know, I'll just pass and go with plan B. Uh, and I think that's, that's even more the case today than any, any, any other time as people are increasingly looking for more user-friendly, uh, effortless type of programs because they have so much going on in their life, as is. But it, but it's, I mean, so there's got to be another side of that coin, right? Uh, you, you can't be doing billions of dollars a year without um, there being an audience who has figured out that uh, the frustration, the notion of not worth it is, I'll just say, incorrect. Or the net assessment of intriguing terms and difficulty shakes out positively and they choose to move forward. So, I mean, what's your, what's your experience? I mean, you, you've done it now probably thousands of times. So, um, you know, to all those on the fence, who've never, never done it, don't understand it. Like what, what is the grass greener on the other side of the fence or not? I guess might be the way to say it. Indeed. Indeed it is. And, and just as you and I, you know, spoke about the other day, if you're going into the Amazon jungle, you need an effective tour guide. You know, and if you have an effective tour guide, you're going to walk through the jungle effortless. You won't even know which direction you're going. You're going to trust your tour guide. You're going to have a great time. And if someone were to ask you, you know, to draw on a map where you were in the jungle, you would have no clue because you were behind this tour guide who's been in that jungle every day for years and knows every inch of it by heart. So the key is to be an absolute expert of these programs, to align yourself with an absolute expert of these programs that knows every angle every inch, just like the tour guide does of the jungle. And, you know, you, you'll escape the process unscathed, happy, and ready to do uh, another loan. 
Yeah. And you've shared with me, you have, uh, you have clients who are kind of HUD only, right? I mean, they don't even bother with the rest of the capital markets ecosystem. Uh, that's right. That's right. I would say overwhelmingly majority of the time, you know, probably 75, 80% of the time, if someone does a HUD loan, they get through it and they have the opportunity to do it again, they do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, while working with us, I think the issue with other mortgage banks or loan originators are they're not experts. You know, they, they either suggest to their client, you know, they're more experts in Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loans. Uh, and they either, you know, for a particular deal where it makes sense, they say, hey, you know, why don't we try out this HUD loan? Or it's the reverse. The client will tell the banker, hey, I've heard, so, I've heard about this HUD loan. Let's, let's try it on this deal. And, you know, they're working with a banker they've worked with for three, four, five, ten years, who they trust. And the banker is like, okay, like, how hard could it be? And they go through the process, and it's miserable. You know, they just, they have a miserable process. And in those type of deals, half the time they close, the other half, midway through the process at some point, they just pivot and go back to the plan B type of financing that they were used to. They said, hey, it's not worth yeah. it. And I think that yeah. that is the, that is where the negative stigma from, from, uh, on HUD, um, uh, has, that's how the misconception of HUD, I should say, um, has become so popular because of those type of examples. Because when you have a, just anything in life, I think, when you have a good experience with something, you don't really talk about it that much. When you have a bad experience, you're talking about it. So that owner, right. that right. owner is going to tell all his friends. He's going to tell every banker he works with in the future. He's going to tell, you know, his management company who's, connected with many other owners about his horrible experience and it's a snowball effect. And that's where the negative stigma derives from. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, look with, with this audience, I think um, your expertise is, is broad enough and deep enough that we shouldn't even attempt to get into all of it. Um, But I do think one of the changes that's happened uh, as you know, as of March 2nd, 2020 was the, uh, conditions precedent required for the 223F, right? Like HUD, all HUD loans, they have these kind of obscure monikers, but that's the um, acquisition refinance, uh, you know, kind of conventional HUD product. Um, prior to March 2nd, it was requiring a three-year seasoning, and, and now that's gone. Um, maybe if you could just talk to that change and kind of the implications that you know, you see for your business and for the marketplace as a whole. I mean, to me, it seems like a, a kind of tectonic shift. Um, but I'd be curious what your what your viewpoint is on that. Oh. And maybe you know, if if I've misspoken to it, and you want to correct me, feel free. No, that's that's one of the the two biggest milestone changes in the HUD program over the last ten years. The other one being Green MIP. Those two have completely changed the landscape. Uh, for HUD. Um, you know, the idea of the rule in the first place was HUD wanted, 
HUD has a construction loan program called the D4 program. And it's a great loan. The problem is, is that the loan requires Davis-Bacon wages. So you have to pay prevailing wage. prevailing wage. So you have to pay all your subcontractors prevailing wage, which increases, you know, total development costs, you know, just overall total, total development costs by anywhere in the range of 5 to 15%, which yep. for a lot of times is, is people's, is just a significant portion of people's profit margin, of developers' profit margin. Yep. So <clears throat> HUD did not want developers to develop their, their, their properties conventionally and then refinancing with HUD immediately upon stabilization, thus skirting the Davis-Bacon requirement. That was the, they wanted to preserve the Davis Bacon and the 221 D4. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily preserving the D4 program. It was more so preserving the Davis Bacon aspect. They didn't want developers okay. to get away with, uh, you know, getting around that requirement. Um, so that's why it was there in the first place. And we've had, I mean, hundreds of deals we've looked at over the past decade. Where you know developers were showing us their their new projects and you know they couldn't wait to get the stabilization and the refinance with HUD and they couldn't they couldn't there was a three year rule in place where you know you just could not refinance a property that was developed conventionally into HUD until three years after final CO they just couldn't there was a roadblock there and non waiverable no way you can get around it Kevin as you said March of 2020 this year just a few months ago. HUD released that memo, waived the three-year rule, and now HUD financing is available for developers who are just hitting stabilization, which has been, which has resulted in a windfall of, of new business. Yeah, and only probably uh, accentuated by the current kind of COVID ecosystem right where uh, there's probably a bid ask spread for uh, a, a recently stabilized property given that uh, there's some uncertainty around structural occupancy you know rent growth or rent collections uh, and so the fallback position of getting really attractive term debt probably pretty good as as a plan b oh yeah oh yeah um uh especially because and i think hud hud over the past HUD over the past three, four months has been, I mean, the, the busiest. I, I'm the busiest I've ever been. Um, there you go. I'm the busiest I've ever been. You know, maybe I've reached this point a couple other times in my career, but I certainly have not surpassed this point in terms of being busy. And uh, it's a result of, of two things. One is the three-year-old waiver. And second is uh, COVID mitigation. Um, mm -hmm. the COVID mitigation for HUD loans is, is relatively speaking, very reasonable. I mean, we can underwrite properties just like we did a year ago, just like we did six months ago. Terms have not changed an inch. And the only requirement is a uh, nine month debt service reserve, which assuming operations remain relatively constant will be released six months after closing. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, like a slight sort of variation on the theme here. One of the dynamics that I'm seeing in the marketplace is 
as a whole, but really, um, you know, the, the far pendulum here is this HUD 223, um, just because as you said before, you know, rate leverage and amortization are, uh, super attractive, but, you know, we've seen from you guys in the last few weeks, rates as low as 2.45%. Um, and, you know, for, for your middle market developer or your middle market value add renovation team who would tell you whether it's true or not, uh, probably a case by case basis that they can build to a six yield on cost and on value add, maybe, maybe even North of a six yield on cost. Um, that historically represented a fairly narrow spread, the six down to what the then prevailing interest rates were. Now, you know, rates have dropped, what, 120 basis points from not too far ago. Um, that strikes me as a really unique um, moment in time. But what are your thoughts around kind of that dynamic What's and what's sort of taking place for, for multi? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, 80% financing, you know, with, with no change in underwriting as a result of COVID, full 80% financing with a 2.7% interest rate all in, including the MIP, locked in for 35 years, fixed rate for the entire term with a 35-year amortization is, it's extremely compelling. I mean, most multifamily owners have been around long enough to see inflation way higher than 2.7%, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. many of those many of those owners and developers who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s, many of them look at it as free money from their, from their past experience in life. Yeah. And just another aspect of you guys being somewhat overwhelmed with uh, business. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we've hired about a dozen people to our underwriting staff. Now, our underwriting staff now is about 50 people. We've had a dozen people over the last three months. And we're still... <laughs> 50, our underwriters are still 50% over capacity on, you know, in, in, in more normal times. Well, let's, let's zoom out. And uh, you and I haven't had a lot of conversations like this, but, um, you know, crystal ball kind of conversations where we've got unprecedented fiscal stimulus from the, you know, Congress. Uh, we've got all kinds of unique monetary policies. The Fed is uh, buying ETFs, they're buying um, recently downgraded corporate bonds that that fell to junk, and they brought them back. They've resuscitated, uh, I believe it's TALF, not TARP. Um, they're buying, you know, the credit strips of legacy CMBS, and they've bumped up their balance sheet by a mere three trillion dollars uh, explicitly. I, I think there's probably leverage effects on that as well. Um, and probably most importantly, it appears we're kind of entering in a, a time period where the Fed's going to kind of nationalize the bond market or, or start to have really explicit yield curve control, uh, all of which, you know, are against the backdrop of um, reshoring, nationalization, protectionism. Uh, you know, to say it's a unique time is somewhat of an understatement, but... Um, 
and again, I know this is not our normal name. We're usually just talking uh, block and tackle on, on transactions, but you know, buff up your crystal ball. What, what's the viewpoint from the perspective of Dwight? I mean, where do you guys see where we're going in the near or long term? In terms of interest rates? Just in terms of the economy. Yeah, sure. Rates is a part of it. Inflation is a part of it. Um, you know, jobs, re- job recovery, like the, the whole shooting match. Like what's, what's your vantage point from all that has happened in the last three months? So, yeah, I, I've come to some bottom line conclusions. Um, I think rates will continue to go down. I think that there's a good chance the 10 year treasury can ultimately go negative. Um, I, I, you know, there are a dozen countries, maybe more where their 10 year instrument has gone negative. I don't see why it shouldn't happen in the U S where credit ratings is stronger than those other countries. Um, I think there's going to be, I think there's, there's tremendous amount of, you know, top of the government, the fed buying bonds. I think there's tremendous amount of demand for U S backed bonds worldwide. And, uh, I, I see the treasury getting way lower um, mm-hmm. uh, than where they are now, which is about uh, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.75%. Um, uh, so, so we think that, you know, I mean, I think Powell um, came out today and said, you know, doesn't anticipate rates, uh, the, the, the Fed raising rates until 2022. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that, that couldn't be more explicit the way he said it. Um, you know, in terms of employment, you know, I see uh, 50% of the jobs lost as a result of COVID will be back by year end. And I think the other 50% yeah. will take, you know, 18 months to get back most, if not all of it. Uh, so this is something we're going to be dealing with uh, for a little while. But, you know, it's certainly not a normal type of recession. Uh, it's it's incredibly unique. It's unprecedented, and um, you know, uh, y- you can only predict so much. Uh, I think a lot. I yeah. think with something like this, which is just, you know, I mean, the the Great Recession was was infinitely more textbook than than what's going on right now. Um, so I think a lot of people should stop looking into the future. In this type of situation, I think obviously you have to, but I think people should f- focus on putting one foot in front of the other and uh, just just working and, and progressing and moving along with the information they have on hand. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. And, you know, all of the pundits, um, I think there's one aspect that is uniformly missed, and that's um, Americans as a collective are hardworking and we like to work and i think you're gonna see people go back to work with some vigor and some passion and i think we forget that i mean we are the we are the country that probably drinks more coffee than anybody in the world and there's a reason for that like we get up in the morning and we go to work and so i do think you'll see um an organic i I sometimes think that word is overused but um recreation and, and manifestation of our former self just because it's who we are. So, you know, the, the economists all look at the, the numbers and the, 
yeah, I, I, won't, I won't even go into it because we've all watched probably too many webinars and the bottom line is the like. I but... think you should bet on America. Ten out of ten times, you bet That's on America. Right. Period. That's right. And uh, I'm, yeah. I'm a huge believer in that. I think if there's any turmoil or any issues going on with this country, always bet on America. Uh, and it's just a matter of not if, but when. Uh, you know, things are back to normal. Things are in a, in a better place. Yeah, agreed. So I'm going to go back to the the beginning of the conversation. You were talking about Adam kind of being the. Uh, 25, 75, 25 revenue, 75 kind of corporate and strategy, you being 75 revenue and, and 25 corporate and strategy. Um, and this is kind of a bridge into a little bit more conversation with you on um, kind of what makes you tick, how you think, you know, kind of um, the entrepreneur inside of, you know, we're talking a lot of sort of uh, facts and figures right now, but um, if we drop into strategy as a starting point um for me like strategy strategy is um well i'll start with tactics right kind of near field application of skills whereas strategy is like the objective so i'm going to get across this body of water strategy is uh, i'm going to swim i'm going to rent a plane i'm going to build a boat build a bridge and then the tactics are all the the things that i need to employ once i make those choices um at Dwight and within your role and Adam's role, how do you guys think about strategy and, and where do you find that being expressed either in the business or personally? In terms of, you know, ongoing day-to-day strategy or, or future vision. Uh, I would, I was thinking more on the future vision or the execution of a strategy you've already decided to pursue. I mean, you, you sort of articulated it in notions of culture and, uh, a, a commitment to be sort of comfortable and streamlined. So you, know, you made a decision and then you employed the tactics. I'm sure if I were to look at the physical floor plate of your office, that there's reflections of what you've decided as a strategy, but you know, I, I wouldn't confine you one way or the other, but um, I guess I was leaning more towards your future strategy, but it's, it's clear that you're being very strategic in what you've done. Uh, right. So, I think, I think um, you could look at all of our other businesses, businesses as an example. You know, we have Dwight Capital, which is you know our hard lending operation and and um, you know largest gener- the biggest revenue driver of, of of the firm is is Dwight Capital. Um, we have a servicing portfolio, which naturally came along with being uh, an originator. Uh, now it's north of six billion dollars. Another division that we have to worry about. Um, now that's more of a natural extension of, of what our day-to-day is, uh, you know, taking it further, uh, we have, um, Dwight city group, um, which is an acquisitions company. Uh, you know, I know you'd mentioned, you know, greater New York area, but, but really we focus in the greater Philadelphia area. Uh, we've made about oh, okay. you know, twenty. My bad. You know, sorry, we've made about uh, twenty, twenty-five acquisitions. Generally smaller uh, over the last two and a half, three years. Um, and the third is uh, you know Dwight Funding. Dwight Funding is an ABL group. It's it's lending to high-growth companies um, in need of capital who are just not able to uh, qualify for bank financing. So you have you know very notable companies like Thursday Boots. Um, uh, peeled the dry food company, 
uh, Snow, an accessories company, that are, you know, Koyos, sneaker, footwear company, uh, just very well-known brands where, you know, they're just not bankable yet. Um, and I think with, with each and every one of them, you know, we, and this will continue to be the case in the future. And, and also uh, DMT. DMT is a Dwight Mortgage Trust. It's a private REIT that we started, which is the, uh, our bridge loan lending arm, which is for both multifamily and healthcare. Uh, there we've closed about a billion dollars over the past couple of years and, and it's only growing. Um, and I think, I think what, what people, you know, don't get about business completely is even if everything, even whatever business you want to start, whether it's another division or another business completely, it's not just about a plan that makes sense. Every business one starts requires a leap of faith, which I think a lot of people miss. You know, oh, uh, he's, you know, this guy does that business. Uh, it's not so hard. That guy does the other business. Uh, not so hard, but, you know, it is because that initial leap of faith is always going to be there regardless of the business you start. So I think that, that with all the things that you said, yes, there is there is strategy, there are tactics, there, um, you know, it's, it's the leap of faith. And, you know, so we've done that with our other, uh, you know, four other businesses, core businesses. And um, as of right now, uh, because I think we're spread a little thinner than we'd like, um, we are, and, and those businesses are, are really way past their infancy and are, in, in, in high growth mode, I think at this point, probably through year end, we're not looking at taking on any other new initiatives, particularly during COVID with all the uncertainty um, and all the liquidity that we need as a lender in case our clients need it. Um, so between those two factors, we're likely going to keep our, uh, biz our structure and our strategy uh, on course and not add anything new. Very good. Yeah. And look to the, to the leap. Uh, I agree with you. It's the difference maker. Right. And, and I think amongst, um, a crowd or audience of entrepreneurs that can be kind of a, a given. Um, but I think the reality is there are many, many people who, um, when given the opportunity might, might not sing those lines, might not take that, that jump. Um, I commend you guys for doing it and, and for, you know, all the people who do it. Um, to that point, I you think, know, I'm reminded to that point. I think every, I think, I think every marginal year we get older, we have more information in our head. We, we, yes. we know more. So, yes. So we, when we want to start something new, I think as human beings, every year we get older, it becomes increasingly difficult to do so because you yep. can, you know too much. You can, you can, yeah, map you out. can manufacture reasons exactly. to say no. Exactly. That's why, you know, often startups are, are, are uh, founded by, uh, you know, people in their twenties or people after college because they're not thinking about those things. So 
I think yeah. it's very important that every marginal year we get older and we evolve and we grow and we get wiser. I think you have to actively try to maintain that mindset. Well, let's let's go into the uh, I agree with you, but let's go into the other side of that. You've taken the leap. You've just outlined, you know, four significant companies that you guys are running. You know, the the phrase that's coming up to me is um, vision without execution is hallucination. And you guys are executing at a very high level with with teams of significant scale. Um, you know, for me, uh, John Doerr's got the book, Measure What Matters. Vern Harnish has Scaling Up. Uh, Gina Wickman has a book called Traction. All like systems to kind of make the trains run on time, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what you guys are doing, but how how do you guys run? Like from daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, like what's the what's the fabric that keeps everybody aligned because Active management it's one thing to be a producer at Greystone. it's a whole nother thing to build a team and build multiple companies and keep everybody focused on the same goals it, it, it comes down it boils down to two things it's two things and i think a lot of people speak about hard work and i don't think that should be spoken about because that's a given of what's required to be successful it's sacrifice what other parts of your life are you willing to cut out to give yourself more time to hone your craft, to grow your business, to do better, to be better? It's about sacrifice. And I, I don't think enough business people, I don't think enough business schools preach that. They don't, they don't talk about what sacrifice entails. You know, you don't see your friends. You don't see your family, right? Uh, you... Uh, aren't going on as many vacations. Uh, you know, so I think sacrifice is a major part of it, which starts at the top. You know, my brother Adam and I uh, both live that way. We both made major sacrifices in our life to make Dwight Capital a reality. And I think that that's been ingrained in the culture. And not everyone, but many people internally ha- have also started living that way. And I, it, it's, you know, it's contagious from what comes from the top. Um, so I think that is a major factor, just dedication to work and sacrifice. And second is active management. You know, as I mentioned to you before, we're sitting in the middle of the office, right? And we're, we're always accessible. We're talking to dozens of people internally every single day. And it's, it's just constant commentary and feedback and conversation and as a result of that we don't have meetings we rarely have Mm. meetings um, Mm. because we all know where everything is right because we're in the middle of everything so so yeah that part is not necessarily the best way it's what works for us i think from that perspective there's no real right way it's what works for the individual and this, that active management is the method that works for us best. So that's what we do. Yeah. Well, and that also says something to your, your scale and process that you guys can be that intimately engaged in the process and know all the moving pieces and parts is probably, I'm, I'm somewhat uh, putting a hypothesis out there, um, why your borrowers have a, a pleasant experience. It's a SWAT team of people who are committed to, the same thing day in and day out, and the dialogues are ongoing. Right. 
Right. Right. And, yeah. You know, it's it's as simple as, you know, Josh, can you get on this call? Josh, can you get on that call? Uh, can you look over this email? Can you look over this proposal? Right. You have other you have our competitors. They can't go to the CEO and owner and do that. Doesn't exist. Right. Doesn't exist. Right. But when we're in there, not only can we help on generating new business, which is obviously very important, but it's keeping it too. What you know, making sure that our originators are kept on their toes in terms of what they're telling their clients, making sure everything is completely truthful, transparent, that they're communicating with their clients with integrity, and uh, and that their clients deals are moving at a good pace and there aren't mm-hmm. any unnecessary bottlenecks. You know, there could be a situation, you know, for example, we had a situation the other day, you know, we, we, this borrower has a impending maturity, which doesn't line up too well with HUD financing. I and mean, the loan matures in eight months and HUD loans, you have to, you have to kind of budget eight months to close and it's kind of cutting a little close and, we couldn't get third-party bid. Yeah, this was another region in our office who was working on this deal. Third-party bids were coming in later because all the all the vendors are backed up with all the HUD work that they're getting. And I picked up the phone and I called the vendor and I said, "Hey, we need a favor. You got to get it to us in two weeks." And with you know with all the business we do, he granted the request and is going to get it in two weeks, uh, which comforted the client and the client ultimately moved forward with us. And hopefully, you know, we're going to do a great job for him and he's going to pay off his loan on time and he's going to be thrilled with his 35-year mortgage. But again, uh, you know, at at 2.7%. And again, that's not happening anywhere else. You know, there isn't that type of rapid response. In that type of situation, another company, it would take a day, maybe two days to get resolved. That was resolved in real time. Yeah. Um, kind of on the personal side, look, my, my view of, of life and in particular the day, uh, is if I can kind of win the day, I, I've got a pretty good chance of winning it all. And my natural, uh, wiring is almost certainly kind of adult ADD. Uh, I've heard it explained as a Ferrari engine with bicycle <laughs> brakes. Uh, so it's really important for me to be focused on what I'm up to and it's easy for that to drift away from me. So I've got a whole series of things that I do in the morning to try to, you know, reorientate myself to the goals at hand. I'm curious if you on the personal side, uh, have any, you know, daily routines or rituals that you think support your, yeah, your yeah. success, um, work out and pray every morning. Uh, and what do those look like for you? I mean, to the, to the degree uh, you're comfortable no, sharing, of no, course. No, perfectly fine. Uh, you know, workout is one of two things. It's either strength training or playing basketball. Um, you know, and, and when I say play basketball, okay. I mean, you know, 5.30 in the morning at a gym in the Upper West Side of Manhattan with a bunch of, you know, bankers, private equity folks, attorneys who are all just coming to play to let it out. <laughs> uh, uh, That's so, great. You know, That's you, great. You know, we, I call it therapy. Uh, so, you know, so th- there's that and then yeah. there's, there's strength training and that's virtually every weekday. You know, 
I usually skip one day just because it's, it's a little much uh, during the week. Um, and then uh, when I get to the office, I pray for, uh, you know, about 15 minutes before I start my day. Very nice. Uh, I appreciate the people who make the time to have a spiritual side of their lives. And I think a lot of folks give lip service to it. Um, they're not sure how many people give it space. You know, you were talking before about compromises, choosing what to focus on and what to remove. And I think for many people that plays, um, it plays a distant second, third or fourth in their life. Yeah. When it comes to belief systems, you know, whatever religion you believe in, you know, there's, there's a dip, you know, all, all great. Um, there's a difference between believing in the religion and then actively doing things that, you know, the, the practice part. Practicing. And I think that's what gets left out a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the relationship side, I know in our exchanges, you have been really clear. Um, well, in fact, let me, let me not go that direction just cause I'd like the listeners to hear it from you. Um, but the longer I've been in business, the clearer it becomes that relationships are central, especially in the real estate business. To me, they're the conduit through which all good things travel. Um, curious, your view of relationships and, and their impact uh, on deep. your all business. Deep. I believe in deep relationships. Um, you know, work is a uh, mechanism to develop deep relationships. But I think that's the most rewarding part of, of my job is I get to speak with, uh, you know, dozens of super successful owners and developers from you know, all 50 States, even Alaska done deals in Alaska. And I get to speak with them spend time with them, learn about them and vice versa. And uh, it's incredibly rewarding. And when you do that, uh, at such a young age, you 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 learn fast. You you get wise quickly. Um, and I don't. And and I do. Um, and and you know, I'm talking you know deep rooted relationships. We're not saying you know let's talk about your appraisal. It's let's talk about life. Let's talk about each other, and learning from each other, and growing with each other, and evolving with each other. Um, and it's uh, it's such an incredible benefit, and I I express this explicitly to some clients, not to all of them, but you know, a, very often we close a big deal, or we close a profitable deal, and you know, the money was completely secondary to the relationship that I have with the owner, and uh, and and what I've learned from yeah. the owner or the developer personally. Um, you know, the, there's some that it's just, in, you know, incredibly rewarding. For example, I'm, I'm engaged. I'm getting married in a couple of months. And uh, thank you. Thank you. It's a small Congrats. wedding, relatively speaking. You know, Jewish weddings are typically 350 to 600 people. Ours is going to be like, uh, you know, 175 people. Uh, and I'll be inviting a dozen clients. Um, so... Huh. You know, who, who, who will be there because we are, you know, these are people 20, 30 years older than me from all over the country and they're going to be there um, 
because of our relationship. I think that's special. Yeah. And and it, do you put any of those relationships in the in the category of mentor? And or if so, uh, you know what what are sort of the standouts? And if if they aren't your mentors, do you have other people who have been your mentors? And and kind of what what have been the the passing of the torch that may have happened through those kinds of relationships? I don't believe in mentors. I just I just don't believe okay. in that idea because I think that in every relationship, regardless of who the two people are, there's so much to learn from each side, right? Uh, I think people are incredibly unique. I think every person in the world has, you know, a unique competitive advantage over everyone else in the world. And I just, I'm not a big believer in it. I think that people have so much to learn from each other. And I don't, I, you know, mentor, I think, generally speaking, has you know, so learned an older, wiser person and a younger, you know, more energetic person in the relationship. And I think both those parties have plenty to learn from each other. So, you know, I, I just, I just, you know, and you may disagree or other people may disagree, but I just don't believe in the idea of a mentor. Yeah. Yeah. I like your idea. Um, look, a couple more and then we can, we can let you carry on with your evening. I know it's late on the East coast. Um, I don't, you and I probably haven't discussed this, but I am a recent father of two girls. One of our girls, Piper, eight weeks old, oh, and wow. Audrey is 23 months old. Um, yeah, and you it's, kept that, you yeah, kept that quiet it's from been me. the simplest. <laughs> pro- well, you know, and here we are just on lockdown with little kids bouncing all around. But uh, it has been probably the simplest and yet profound purpose um, that's come to my life. And I would, I would articulate that simply as giving them a better shot than, than I was given. Um, I'm curious for you, um, you know, you kind of allude to it there just in the way you speak about and towards people and relationship and the opportunity to get to know people. But, um, do you have purpose that, that for you drives and, and overlays, um, your relationship to the world of finance, which, you know, in, in many ways, people could view as kind of uh, a somewhat sterile um, construct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't look at, I don't, it, it, may, it may sound crazy, but money stopped mattering to me a long time ago. And I'm a relatively young person, but money was, was only a driver maybe in my first three, four years in business. Uh, what has driven me is winning. Um, mm-hmm. And I learned that early on. And I think it's because we had early success monetarily where just money became an afterthought quickly, uh, which, which was such a blessing. And I realized there's a way bigger picture. And from a, you know, obviously there's the, the personal aspect of, you know, believing in God, believing in charity, believing in family and, and having kids and um, all those great things, which, you know, I think are super important, but uh, within the business, it's in terms of day-to-day thought process. It's all about winning. It's all about seeing our name at the top of the HUD lender rankings at the end of the year. Um, that is my primary goal and objective and what's front and center in my mind all day long. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
so look, you've left a few kernels, I think, on Tim Ferriss's podcast. He'll throw it out as like, if I could pay for a billboard for you to put in the city for for the entrepreneurs, like anything you want to say that you think, uh, you know, those who are, you know, deep in the midst of it, maybe in the dark days of some tumultuous time or those who are thinking of launching out on their own, um, maybe something that you wish you would have learned sooner, but any, any kind of, if you will, words of wisdom for the, yeah, the sure. entrepreneurs my, out my, there. My favorite, which is a billboard that already exists, is uh, for Johnny Walker, which is uh, keep walking. You know, I, I love seeing <laughs> billboards in the city. I think there's, yeah. there, there's a couple of them. And it's, uh, it carry on. You know, God forbid, unfortunately, you lose a deal. Um, you know, you lose a client for whatever reason, your fault, their fault. Um, you, any issue you deal with in life, carry on. Don't think about it. Turn the page. Keep walking. So uh, my billboard already exists to, to keep walking. But if you wanted to change it up, it would be, uh, you know, turn the page or, or carry on. You know, one of those three works. And, and, and that's because and, that's something that's yeah, something I fantastic. struggled with when I was younger. I, I couldn't let go of things. And thankfully, I've, I've learned to do that. Thank you, Josh, for taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate it. If if people want to get a hold of you, the best uh, probably website is to well Google. You you can do any of them. Dwight Capital, Dwight City Group, Dwight Funding. You'll find all of them. But probably, well, I'll say this way: if you want to share the Dwight Capital domain, whatever you're comfortable with, the name or uh, sorry, name is already out there. Email, phone number, uh, or just whatever you like. But if you want to leave some contact yeah, info yeah, here, so, feel free. Uh, my cell, which is where I take all my calls from, is uh, 347-886-6700. And my email address, uh, primary email address is js, as in Sam, at dwightcap.com, D-W-I-G-H-T-C-A-P.com. Perfect. Again, Josh, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Super insightful. Uh, you yeah. know. Congrats. I mean, for you guys to be where you are doing what you're doing, uh, the the drive to win is alive and well. And <laughs> you are kicking ass and taking names. So congrats to you guys. And I look forward to thank you, Kevin. I appreciate to work with the you. time. I appreciate you putting this together and, uh, you know, looking forward to working with you for, for a very long time. How are you too? Sounds good. Take care, Josh. Bye.